Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Oh, I am so glad to be back with Mary and Sandy Phillips Kirkham, who's with us today. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good. Well, Sandy, you wrote a book called Let Me Pray Upon You. And I love the title because it's actually originally says, let me pray with you. And that part's crossed out. Um, That really hit me because I think just as survivors of sexual abuse who have been hurt by the church, um, you know, by the toxic positivity, or just like, let's put a little bandaid on your trauma with some spirituality um, and let me pray with you, you know, saying, let me pray upon you really shows the, the distinction for survivors and how even language really, really matters with us. And so I was like, immediately saw the cover and I was like, okay, this woman gets it. Let's dive into this book. So Sandy, um, your book, I felt like it was so just honest and raw and vulnerable in a way that like your feelings about everything you went through was so honest and obvious and in a weird way, comforting to those, um, who probably have gone through something like this, which I really related myself, but I wondered if you could just kind of open up a little bit. I know probably most interviews you do, they're like, can you tell us your story? I'm not going to do that from the gates, but I know you'll unpack it as we go. But, um, I guess my first question is I want to dive into the picture on the front of that cover. There's a picture of a wolf. Did I say that right, Mary? Yes, you did. Okay. (laughs) You got it. I'm really, I grew up here in the Midwest and I struggle with some kind of pronunciation, but, (laughs) and then two sheep. And can we talk about that? (laughs) Sure. Well, that's, it's exactly what these men are. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They pretend to be a sheep or a shepherd. And in fact, they're wolves and they prey upon the vulnerable, which are the sheep, the trusting sheep who think the shepherd is taking them under their trust and actually are there to victimize them. And, um, you know, the Bible talks 27 times about wolves in sheep's clothing. So it's not something that's a rare occurrence, sadly. Uh, it happens more than we'd like to believe. And I think that's one of the problems uh, churches have in dealing with this is because they want to believe it's an isolated case or that it doesn't happen that often, that it warrants some kind of dramatic consequence to it. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the wolf in the sheep's clothing, um, to me, represented what this man did to me. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you for that. I definitely, I have a lot of questions when it comes to that, simply because a lot of the survivors in our care, the ones who, you know, we come alongside weekly in our Unleash um, survivor support groups, that has been one of the hardest topics. I know, Mary, you've sat in so many of those and Mm -hmm. you've seen how hard it is for us to really accept the reality, you know, the grooming process, the fact that we were targeted, you know, that there was a vulnerability about us. That is really, really tough. Um, And I wonder if 
you would be willing to, as you maybe unpack a little of your story, as much as you feel comfortable with, even share a little bit of how that has been for you to. Well, I was 16. Um, I was 16 uh, when the abuse began. He was married with two children. He was the youth pastor who was very dynamic, charismatic. Everyone loved him. He was treated like a rock star. And so for me, it was this person who was wonderful, was helping me in my life with my parents being divorced. He was putting me in positions of church leadership. I was very active in the church. And so I trusted him. And for years, literally for years, I could not believe that I had been sexually abused because I so wanted to believe in some way, in some realm that he did care about me. It was very hard for me to accept that someone who seemed to be like this wonderful person that everyone loved would take advantage of someone in such a hurting place in their life. And that's exactly what he did. And so for me, my healing uh, was really impeded for many years because I did not want to believe it was abuse. I wanted to believe on some level that he cared about me. And even now I think about it and I, it, it hurts my heart and hurts my soul to think someone could be so evil and devious is to take advantage of someone in a vulnerable position, whether it be a child or an adult. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's just, it's, it it makes me very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Us as well. Um, And it's from someone that we should have been able to trust in a place that should have been the safest place on earth, the church. Mm -hmm. And so to, to use the scripture and to use yourself as a representative of God for your own advantage is, is even more diabolical and evil. It's, it's horrible. Yeah, it is. And it's happening far too much. And then I think the silencing that happens within the church, you know, has only caused it to continue on. We Mm -hmm. still in this year of our Lord, 2023 have churches who are silencing victims and enabling the perpetrators, right? Yes. Yes. And in my case, um, they made it very clear that I, once he was caught, now the abuse lasted for five years. Um, and once he was caught, it was the decided that, you know, he would be moved to the next church. He was given a going away party. Uh, he was forgiven. It was, you know, he had just made a mistake. I was called in by the elders and told him because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And that, that was devastating to me because I love that church. So the yeah. victim was blamed. I was blamed. And that still goes on today. The other point about my story is this wasn't his first occurrence. This had happened mm-hmm. right after he was hired at my church. Um, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of sexual inappropriate behavior. He didn't deny it. He said it was true, but he was sorry. He made a mistake. He asked for forgiveness. It would never happen again. My elders decided to forgive him. They gave no information out to the congregation about this incident. And within six months of that accusation, he was kissing me in my home after a youth group meeting. And this is the story we hear so often as far as not even just in churches, but like religious organizations, institutions, you know, faith-based, any kind of communities or workplaces. It's like, for some reason, these people because God forgives, they can move from one place to another, to Mm -hmm. another. And these things aren't talked about. So we have women who are speaking up, who are using their voices, many times losing their jobs Mm -hmm. or losing their communities to protect other people. And it doesn't matter 
because we have other leaderships just circling the wagons, protecting them to the next spot. Mm-hmm. Like we have to have a better system in place to be able to protect people. Right. Well, I think part of the problem with church leadership is they only see this from a moral aspect. They see it as a moral failing, a moral fall. And so biblically, they want to treat it. You know, they use, I think, twisted scripture to say, well, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're not to judge each other. Well, Mm -hmm. my answer to that is I'm not judging my abuser, whether he's right with God or he's going to heaven or hell. I'm judging his ability to do his job. And he has proven by his own actions He can't do that job and he should not remain in ministry. So I think churches fail to see that it's also a professional violation. They've broken the ethics of their profession. And like any other profession, whether it's a a doctor or a counselor, having sex with their patients is illegal Mm -hmm. and they lose their license. And that's how it should be with pastors, priests and rabbis as well. Mm -hmm. So I think churches want to see it. Well, we need to forgive and we we need to protect him and help him and do things for him to make him a better person and bring him back into Christ, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's fine. But he also broke the ethics of his profession. So he needs to lose that privilege of ministry. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Yeah. And it's just mind blowing that in this day and age that we're still trying to help, you know, HR firms understand this, you know, or it's crazy. Oh, well, I want to also kind of just hit on something that you mentioned, two things. I was really glad that you also just acknowledged that this kind of stuff happens even with adults, you know, the abuse of power for especially women under male Christian headship in Mm -hmm. a church, you know, could be another staff member or whatever. Um, I think it's so often not discussed, you know, yeah, any more clear if it's a minor. Exactly. And and I, I counsel women and work with women with the Hope of Survivors Ministry and that they have a, a bigger hurdle to get over because women say or people say, them, well, you know, you were an adult, you should have known better. The problem is when you have someone in a powerful position and an influential position, such as a pastor or a religious leader, and then you come across this woman who's in a vulnerable place, she's gone through a divorce, she's had a death in the family, she's had prior abuse in her, in her life. All of those things add to the vulnerability, again, where the predator seeks them out, targets them, and then pretends that he's helping them in order to take advantage of them. And mm. so it, you know, adults, men and women can be taken advantage of mm. by someone in a position of authority. And they use that position um, in an evil way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that so often I also just, I'm thinking of our survivors and our support groups, you know, we wanted to believe that they really cared about us. Mm-hmm. Like we want we don't want to believe that we were targeted in this way or that they were plotting or that we we're like some sort of a pawn, you know what I mean? Like, and that's so confusing. And we want, for me, I wanted to believe some of the lies because a lot of the lies he told me were there to, to, to strip away my self-esteem and to, to batter me and emotionally. But some of the lies he told me, I wanted to believe that he, that he cared for me, that he thought I was special and the attention that I got, you know, I like that attention and I needed sure. it and he knew that. And so, yeah. yes, it's, 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 it's a confusing state for a victim to, to rationalize this person on one side who sexually abused us. And then on the other side, who seemed to care about us. And in reality, yeah. in the beginning, they do, they, they pretend yeah. to. And so we yeah. accept that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and for many of them, 
they um, are often, you know, well-liked by everyone else. Mm -hmm. So like, why would we second guess that? Yeah, I mean, when you come to with the clergy, of course, you know, they're represented by God. We we aren't questioned to question them. And it's easy right. for them to twist the scripture. I mean, my, mm-hmm. my abuser told me that we were married in God's eyes and that this was God's will and that he was just like David in the Bible, that God would use David in spite of his faults. And all of those things you know, I'm questioning, but again, with the gaslighting, which is another topic of how these predators work, it it totally, it brainwashed me and confused me. And I Mm -hmm. felt trapped. I felt trapped. I felt like I could not get out of this relationship. In part, once it turned sexual, uh, I mean, and I mean, sexual intercourse, he told me I couldn't tell anyone that anyone wouldn't believe me. And that whatever would happen if I were to tell would be my fault. So I felt responsible for him. Um, and that keeps the victim silent as well. Uh, in addition to the shame that we feel. And children as young as five will feel guilt and shame for allowing this predator to have touched him in a place that their mom and dad told them never to let them touch them. And that's mm-hmm. why it's hard and hard for children to come forward because first of all, they don't have the words. What words does a child have to use when these things happen to them? And then secondly, when we, they've been told, don't ever let anyone touch you there. Well, the trauma of someone actually touching there puts them in a freeze motion. And the next thing they believe is I've allowed this man to touch me and I shouldn't have done that. And so it's my fault and I'll get in trouble if I tell my mom and dad. So understanding why victims remain silent is also important to understand this issue, because as you probably know, the question always comes up, well, why did you wait so long? I waited 27 years before I told anyone. And I was going to my grave with this secret. I didn't want Mm -hmm. anyone to know this about me. So for me, it was a trigger that said, okay, you're going to have to deal with this. You can't suppress this anymore. So remaining silent isn't necessarily a choice. It's a survival method for us. It's, it's mm-hmm. how we survive because we understand that if I tell someone I'm going to be blamed, I'm going to be judged, I'm going to be criticized. And as our abuser tells us over and over, no one's going to believe you. And at the age of 47, when I came forward, I still had that fear in my mind. The first time I said the words, I've been sexually abused by my youth pastor. And it took me a year to, to not have that fear that something bad was going to happen to me. I remember during one of our Unleashed support groups, when Nicole was talking about basically what we're saying here, how confusing it is that it's supposed to be someone you trust. Um, they put all the things in place to make you think you can believe them. It would be so much easier if it was the scary guy who jumps out of a dark alley because mm-hmm. we know there's they're bad guys, they're monsters, period. Right. But then when you try to, like you said, reconcile in your brain, well, this is sometimes a good guy or sometimes a good girl, but then sometimes they're bad and our brains don't really know what to do with that because it's like Nicole always talks about the both and and trying to navigate that in our brains it just feels like mush in my mm-hmm. brain trying to make sense of all of that. And I think it's a survival mode for our brains because it, it's mm-hmm. so traumatic when it happens to us. Our brains have to figure out how do I handle this? What do I do with this? And mm-hmm. so subconsciously it starts to live below the surface. And so we that's our coping mechanism and, and to somehow either justify it or figure out how to live within this abuse of a situation. You know, as I said, it went on for five years for me, you know, and the couple of times that I would go to him and say, look, I can't do this anymore. I feel guilty. This is wrong. He would respond in one of two ways. And he could read me to 
to know which one of the responses would work. The first one was to tell me how much he loved me, how much he cared for me, and how much he needed me in his ministry, and how he would be lost without me. So that's guilt. The second response would be, you're worthless. You're no longer a virgin. No one else is going to want you. I'm the only one that can love you. And I came to believe that. And so for me, I just began to say, this is my life. I, this will only be over when he says it's over. I'll never get married. I'll never have children. And I accepted the relationship. And then from that point on, I basically just, whatever it is he wanted me to do, I did. And if you read the book, you understand there were some things in there that were very horrific that I, I can't say I agreed to, but I was under his control to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering just um, as a, we've talked about how grooming is a hard thing for survivors. I just am thinking about the listeners today who do struggle with that, who struggle accepting that they were groomed, um, feeling like something about them was a vulnerability that made them a target. Um, and then having to process memories through that lens, like mm-hmm. that is hard. Um, has that been a process for you? Was that hard for you? Well, yeah, I, like I said earlier, I, I, I kept going, I had two brains. I kept going back to this person that I didn't want to hurt. Even when I was ready to confront him, which I eventually did. Mm -hmm. I remember calling my best friend and sobbing on the phone. I said, I can't do this because he might get fired from his job. And my friend said, he should be fired, but I couldn't Um, recognize. I I was still into that mode of what if, and and I shouldn't be doing this. And uh, I think it was very difficult to, to, to figure that out. And it took me a long time to do that. I think part of it is there's, you, you, you have Susan Forward has a great acronym called FOG, F-O-G. And she said, victims are afraid to speak out. They're afraid to confront their abusers because of FOG, F-O-G. Fear, they feel an obligation to their abuser and they feel guilt because Mm. this person has been good to them in many ways. So there's this fear of what will happen. And that, that is huge for victims. We're so afraid. What will happen if I tell? What will happen if I force myself to look at my abuse? What will I, what's, what's my next step? I mean, for me, I remember thinking, okay, so now I'm ready to tell someone. Now, what do I, after I tell them, what, what happens next? Do I have to deal with this? Because I wanted to to go away and it wasn't going to go away. It doesn't Mm. go away. It never, ever goes away. But the great thing about healing is while it's still a part of you, it doesn't define you. It doesn't control you like it once did. Once your healing process starts. Mm Hmm. Wow. And it also brings up the, the fact that you got, you were forced to leave your church, like the Mm -hmm. fog. That's so, that's so good. I hadn't actually heard of that. And, and, you know, I think it really is so true, but the idea of like, if I do talk about it, like I could lose everything Mm -hmm. because I know how the systems are set up. Right. Or especially men and especially for Christian men, especially for Christian men who are in leadership. Like Mm -hmm. we know that we aren't worth enough. (laughs) Yes. And, um, you know, in your book, you talked about how the response of the church hurt more than the abuse itself. And I've said that many times and it's so very true. You know, had they called me into that meeting with the elders to say, we want to support you. What was done to you was wrong and we care about you and we're going to help you. It would have changed the total trajectory of my life 
from that point mm -hmm. forward. But what that meeting did when they looked at me and said, you are to leave this church. And that's, a, it was a very short meeting. They, I walked in, they sat me down. They said that we know what you've done and you are to leave this church. And it, 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 it how do you think you, you have, how bad do you have to be to be kicked out of a church? That's how I felt for 27 years. I thought if anyone knows my past, I have to tell them I was horrible enough that I got kicked out of a church, a church I loved and, and in a church where they supported him and said he could go and continue in ministry. Now, keep in mind the next church that he went to, he had um, sexual relationships with a 20 year old and she got pregnant. Um, when I confronted him, he made it very clear that he'd had many, many incidences over his ministry at that time. In addition to, he had had counseling, which was supposed to make me feel better, I suppose, but that he had been identified as a sexual addict and he was still in ministry. So you're right. They will, the facts don't seem to matter to church leadership. For whatever reason, they want to protect they think the reputation of the church, keep these men hidden, continually move them along and forgive them mm -hmm. while victims suffer on the side. We're not given the support or in a, we're given it in a way to say, we forgive you too. Mm -hmm. Or they may not overtly say, we want you to leave the church, but I've had many victims say to me, well, they came to me and said, you know, this must be difficult for you to be here in the church. So maybe it'd be better if you found another church. We're not telling them they have to leave, but they certainly are encouraging that because they don't want the reminder either of this person around them. They don't want, mm -hmm. they want it to, they want to gloss over it and pretend as if it didn't happen and move on mm -hmm. while Gosh. the victim is unable to do that. We can't yeah. move on. Mm -mm. Right. And they expect us to, or the other thing, and you, you know, maybe some of your um, people that you've talked to will say this too. They, you need to forgive your abuser. You need, well, they don't even call me an abuser. You know, you need to forgive your pastor because mm -hmm. it's, this is what God would want you to do. Let me just say this. No victim should ever be told they need to forgive ever, ever, ever. It is entirely up to the victim to decide how they would forgive if they will ever forgive and what forgiveness means to them. You know, yeah. forgiveness is not remaining silent. It's mm -hmm. not about no consequences. It's not about glossing over what was done to us. For me, it was, for me, it was letting go of, of just letting go of it because I was so tired of being angry. I was so tired of thinking about him and angry that he was getting, there were no consequences for his behavior. I was angry that he still remained in ministry. And I had to finally say, as much as I wanted justice, it wasn't going to happen. As much as I wanted an apology, it wasn't going to happen. So mm -hmm. what could I do to let myself heal and move forward. I had to let it go. Doesn't mean that I don't have moments when they come back. For mm -hmm. sure. But I had to say, I want to live the life that I was meant to live and not the one that was created by my abuser. Now mm. it's not easy. It's not, it wasn't easy. And it's, like I said, I still have those moments. But as long as I was holding on to that pain, that anger, he was still a part of my life. He was yeah. still there creating this havoc in my life. And I didn't mm -hmm. want him in my life. I, you know, I still have nightmares. I, I can't control those, but I can wake up in the morning and let it go because it's, there's nothing I could do or change. And so what I can do is, is talk about my abuse to help others, to tell mm -hmm. my story, 
because our stories are so important. Your story is important. Every victim's story is important. And it's up to them to decide how much they want to tell and how much they want to share. And if you're not able to, that's okay too at the moment. I, I, I would encourage that you need to tell someone because mm-hmm. I think keeping that in is not good. But God gave me the gift of gab. So I use it. <laughs> Okay, I just wanted to pause a moment to tell you about this community called Unleash that we keep referring to. If it sounds like a secret club, that's because it is. But if you're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse or sexual abuse or sexual trauma of any kind, you are personally invited. Unleash is an eight-week e-course. It features film, storytelling, personal contemplation exercises, and my favorite part, a safe online space where we meet virtually in small support group settings led by myself and other trauma experts where we openly discuss this lifelong journey of healing from sexual abuse. It's kind of like a book club, but like a really precious one, (laughs) a place where questions are welcome and your story, as much as you feel comfortable sharing, is safe. Maybe you've experienced some healing, but you long to be unleashed. I hope you'll consider joining us. Each group is limited to eight survivors. So head over to our registration page now and grab a seat. The website is iamonevoice.org slash unleash. And by the way, if you aren't interested in the support group part, but you want to just work through the videos and the ebook content at your own pace, we have that option too. It's right there on the website as well. This road of healing can feel pretty long, but we don't have to walk it alone. That's why we're here. And I hope you'll join us at one of our upcoming groups. More info at imonevoice.org slash unleash. Something else to add about the forgiveness piece is it doesn't mean reconciliation. Absolutely not. I have a 17-year-old sister and I was just educating her on that um, because there was some guy who's being a jerk. And so I'm like helping her navigate that. And I'm trying to be too much into her world, but I'm very protective. And I just mentioned, we were talking about forgiveness and I said to her, it doesn't mean that you're wiping the slate clean and let's start over our relationship. Mm -hmm. I said, that's not what it means. Forgiveness is about you. And then you choose what you want to do with that after you either forgive or you don't forgive. Um, It doesn't mean you have to have a relationship with that person. And that's where I think a lot of people get mixed up. And I know I did in the past um, Mm -hmm. being a newer Christian. Right. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I asked the question, if, if, if I had been raped in an alley, would the first thing someone for the church would say to me is you, you need to forgive your rapist? Exactly. No, that wouldn't be your first. But it seems to be one of the first things that mm-hmm. we're told initially now, you know, it just boggles my mind, boggles mm-hmm. my mind that that is where so many Christians go to say, you know, you need to forgive him. And I think part of the hopes is if you forgive him, then you won't continue to talk about this. And I've been accused of that. I've been told, well, you, you know, you talk about in your book, well, that you, you forgave him. Well, that doesn't mean that I have to remain silent about what was done to me. And mm-hmm. especially since he remains in ministry and he's a threat, he is still a threat by the, and the fact that he is in ministry without his congregations knowing about his past to me is such a huge red flag. Why is this something that the church is hiding from their congregation? 
Is it because they're afraid that they might not find it appropriate that this man's in ministry? Mm. Do they want to, to create some kind of persona on this man so that he's not questioned? Um, it's just, yeah, I don't, it's I, don't, interesting. I, don't I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how the forgiveness piece almost is for other people to feel better for yeah. them to go, Oh, someone messed up. We expect that in life because people are human and they're broken. They make a mistake, but they forgive them. And ooh, now we have a clean slate and they can walk and do whatever God's purpose is for their life. It makes people feel better when they can mm-hmm. check that off the list, which is disgusting. And I think it's their way of coping with it because they don't have to deal with the truth. That way it's, exactly. it, it, you're right. It's a slight thing. And I've said many times, look, you know, these men, sometimes women who've abused in the, within the church deserve all the grace and love that God gives to all of us, but they deserve it sitting either in the third pew or in jail or outside the church. They don't belong on the, in the pulpit that they've mm-hmm. lost that privilege. And um, I think that's also hard for victims because again, we, we feel sorry for our, our abusing to some extent. And we, like I said, I was so afraid once I came forward, he was going to lose his job. Well, shoot, I was wrong on that. Not only did he not lose his job, I was told, listen, this happened 27 years ago. It has no validity to today. We think he's safe. Even though he's a sexual addict, we are going to keep him as our pastor and you need to move along. And that's, mm-hmm. that was the response I got. And then I went to his denominational leaders, um, it, the president of the denomination. I was basically told the same thing. And so, you know, at some point as a survivor, we, we need to find other avenues in order to help people and going to the church and wasn't, I was getting nowhere. Mm-hmm. Now I will say, mm-hmm. and I need to add this, I think my former church, I did request a meeting of them. And none of the elders who were there at the time and told me to leave were in positions now, but that church needed to take responsibility and ownership for what was done to me in that church 27 years ago. And I was very grateful that they allowed that meeting. And I sat there and told my story because I wanted the truth to be told. I am sure whatever narrative he gave them was not even close to the truth. And they needed not only to hear the truth, but they needed to accept it. And then they needed to say to me, they were sorry. And they did that. And I'm, I'm grateful. That was really big in my own healing um, Mm -hmm. for them to do that. And not many churches would do that. Mm. There's a quote that I don't really know who said it, but it, it says the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me think about the story and like, and all of our stories, but so much clergy sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. right. That we really need good men to hear us and to do something. Correct. Stand up and and say, say this is wrong, and you've lost by their own actions. No one has caused their demise, but themselves by their own actions, they've mm. lost that privilege to remain in a leadership position within the church. Whether it's an elder, a Sunday school teacher, they've and listen. If it's a, if it's a minor, it's a crime. It's a crime. Right. You should be arrested, and no one should be covering up. But they are the abuse of a minor. And in 13 states, it's illegal to have any kind of sexual relationship with a pastor, with a member of his congregation, just 13 states. Mm -hmm. Ohio is not one of them. So um, a pastor can take a woman in counseling, take abuse of her vulnerability, take advantage of her vulnerabilities, and he has not committed any kind of crime. If he were Mm -hmm. a psychiatrist or a doctor, it would be a crime. But because he's a pastor, it's not. It's insane how much protection there is around that reminds me of our interview, Mary, recently with Amy Nordhues, 
Mm-hmm. I've met with her. Yeah. Have you? Yeah. yeah. Her story and her book reminded me a lot of yours. I love mm-hmm. both of them. Yeah. I mean, our but, stories are very similar in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's why I, I think our stories are important to tell because mm-hmm. what I may say today or what someone may read in Amy's book or my book or your books will resonate with them in order to help them come forward or to at least start that healing process. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, I believe so much of it is education. It's mm-hmm. understanding what was done to us. This didn't just happen. It was done to us. And so yeah, that's right. when we learn the terms of grooming and gaslighting and manipulation, for me, I was able to look back and say, oh, that's exactly what he did. That is yeah. exactly what he did. Mm-hmm. And then I can, take, I can take the blame off myself. Mm-hmm. And, and the question of why didn't I say no, or why didn't I do this? I tell victims, you did the best you could with the coping skills you had at the time. Yeah, it's, you great. don't have the knowledge now that you had, you know, you have now that you would have had then you didn't have it. So you mm-hmm. can't look back and say, I should have done this, or I should have said this, because you, mm-hmm. you, you were powerless, because again, he trapped you. He, he, you, you didn't have the power or the coping skills to be able to resist this very clever, manipulative predator. Mm -hmm. That's why they're wolves in sheep's clothing. We can't Mm -hmm. see them. They're disguised. It's so hard. And I think for victims to understand that will help them. I do too. I do think like learning more about all of these kinds of things. um, When it comes to trauma, it does help put the puzzle pieces together and it helps solidify in our minds. Like for many of us, we didn't want to believe we were victims. Right. And so it helps us to understand, okay, that was not right. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think would be good? Like red flags for listeners to watch for, especially in church settings. Well, I think you pay attention to the vulnerable people in your church. Look for the child who's bullied. Look for the child who is shy, overtly shy, look for the the woman who's divorced and she may be you know uh, my abuser had more than at the time he was having uh, inappropriate uh, behavior in his office when he was with me and would tell me about them so one woman in particular was divorced she was uh, attractive and he would say to me well she keeps throwing herself at me so why not so I've taken her in the office and you know we kissed and hugged and I've touched her a few times Look, I don't care what her response was and what she did or didn't do. It was always his job to maintain those proper boundaries. And even if she's doing those kinds of things, as a pastor, as a counselor, he needs to see her actions as a cry for help and not an invitation to go to bed. You know, I've even had I've even had people say sometimes um, to me, well, you know, that child, she's 12, but she really looks like she's 16, as if somehow that makes a difference. Or she's a sexualized child and and she has some issues. Absolutely. So so that's a reason to take advantage of her. It doesn't matter what happened before or what that woman Mm -hmm. has done. It's his responsibility to keep those boundaries and maintain those boundaries. It's never, ever, ever the victim's fault. Never. And now I forgot your question. (laughs) It's okay. I think what you said was great. And it just reminds me of the importance of Dr. Diane Langberg's work on just power, the abuse of power, especially in the Mm -hmm. church. It's just a reminder of like, it kind of just like dispels all the smoke and the gray area of like, 
you were yeah. actually in charge of this person. Yeah. You had a platform. Yeah, that helps. And where else um, are you think about it? Church is going to have the most number of people who are vulnerable. That's why people come to church. Mm-hmm. We, we come to church because we're hurting sometimes that and part. therefore we're seeking help. And we shouldn't go in expecting then that the person we think is going to help us is going to take advantage of us. As I said, you know, my parents were divorced. So for me, I found church to be this wonderful, caring place as a kid. I loved it. It was my safe place. And so when you think about it, predators have the greatest uh, access to vulnerable people in the church. Yeah. You're right. It, it brings up for me also, like thinking about that, that was your safe place. You know, that was your chosen family. That was your belonging was in that community and that that was taken from you. My gosh, how many of our listeners, how many survivors struggle with the fear of abandonment? Mm-hmm. Right. And the fact that we have the courage to say something, or we could show up as our authentic self and be vulnerable for once and say, this is me. This is what I've experienced. This is actually who I am because so many of us are perfectionists. We're people pleasers. We're the overachievers. We're the ones like you say in your book, you were involved in all the church activities. If you weren't the leader of it, you were in it, you know, Mm -hmm. like we're doing all the things. Mm -hmm. And on the outside, we all look married the same, you know, like we all grew up having all the outward greatness, but on the inside, it's like we are bleeding and we finally found the courage to say, this is what's in here. Mm -hmm. And that's when we get abandoned. And Mm -hmm. that was your story. Yeah. I hate that. And even when I told my husband, um, 27 years later, I still had that fear, even though I knew he would respond in a wonderful way and he would not blame me. He would not judge me. But in my mind, there was this fear, you know, is he going to see me different sexually? Is he going to wonder why I kept this secret from him for 27 years? Is he going to wonder why I couldn't trust him? All of those things play into why victims can't come forward. And you're right, that fear of being abandoned and who's going to judge me? Who's going to? And the other thing for me was for 27 years, I call it the imposter syndrome. I Mm. felt like I was this imposter because I was hiding this part of my life. And I was so certain that if people knew that I'd had an affair with a married man who was my pastor, that they would no longer like me mm-hmm. and that I would be, I wouldn't have the friends that I had. And that kept me silent as well. Um, yeah. yeah. And that that's hard to let go of that. It's hard, but especially once, when you see it play out. Yes, it, exactly. You were abandoned. Yes. Yes. And you, and you see other stories of, of people. Um, right. And again, our abusers make sure they know that we know that. You will be blamed if yeah. whatever happens, if you tell, it's going to be your fault. And and that is so ingrained in our brains, at least it was in mine, that I couldn't let go of that. I just knew that what he was telling me was the truth and that I couldn't ever, ever tell anyone or let anyone know about his, who he was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because he was so charismatic and because he could, what I say, he also manipulated and groomed those around him. No one was going to believe that what I was going to say was going to be true. You know, he was a rock star to them. And I was, I was this lowly little person in the, in the church. What, what did my voice have? I had no voice. I had no voice. He was this powerful pastor in the church. And I was going to accuse him of something that no one would want to believe was true. 
And we'll talk about they, the real imposter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the real one who on the outside is one thing and then woo, on the mm-hmm. inside, put your guard up. Yeah. You know, I, I've told people, imagine me sitting in church on a Sunday morning, listening to him talk about the sanctity of marriage while he had sex with me the night before. You know, that that the, the victims are so, we're so confused and manipulated that we can't, it, we can't process it and think for ourselves to get out of it. I, I couldn't anyway. I, I couldn't. And like I said, it went on for five years. So by the end of the five years, I had been accepting of this relationship and just felt like this was my life. I was mm-hmm. in a low, low point in my life. Yeah. The mind games just oh. create such chaos to feel. And the word trapped used earlier in this conversation, I think that's such a a common um struggle we feel trapped yeah yeah and i tell people you know just because there's because people say well didn't you couldn't you have told anybody at the time well just because there seems to be a way out doesn't mean we see it yeah and so many of us people ask us they'll be like what's going on with that oh nothing yeah right (laughs) it's like no we're we're, not ready it's too scary we're we're very good actresses about that or actors we (laughs) we know how to cover it up um, our abuse because we don't want to reveal it and how do we not reveal it by pretending that we're okay. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And we definitely carry that into adulthood and the healing journey. I mean, that's a big, big part of healing, I think. Mm. And I think no, I'm just saying for healing, we have to remember too, that you take four steps forward and then you'll take two steps backwards that it's, it's not a linear Mm -hmm. process. And there are days when I thought, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm good. I I'm I'm not over it, but I feel, and then I'll have a month later when a trigger will happen. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm sitting here sobbing over this again. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, I think it's important for victims to understand that Mm -hmm. I, I, it's not an end game for healing. It's a process that um, gets better maybe, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's it's, it's over. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I don't mean that to be like, there's no hope, yeah. but it, 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 it's a part of us. It's a trauma. It's a healthy, that, healthy yes. acknowledgement of the yes. process. That's right. Nicole's exactly. famous quote that I hate healing is a lifelong journey. I'm like, shut up, Nicole. I'm over it. Um, but I was going to mention a moment ago when you said, you know, when people were asking you, well, why didn't you get out or why didn't you tell, or you thinking at 16 that you're supposed to have the answers and you know, I just had the image of a maze that has no exit, just a mm-hmm. maze. And someone asking like, why didn't you get out? Are you, <laughs> yeah. there was no exit. There was no yes. exit in this maze. So shut the hell up. Like there's no. Oh, and because you're just... in a maze and you keep hitting a wall every time you try, you give up. I mean, that's what I did. I mean, I, there was no exit for me. So what do you do? You, you give up and you say, this is just the way it's going to be forever. Um, You're stuck now, in a maze. Yeah. yeah. And, and I did see a small glimmer of someone who did um, think she noticed something was wrong. She, she didn't think that I was very happy. And she confronted me one night and she said to me, it was at a youth group meeting, you know, is something going on between you and Jeff? And of course I clammed up and told her, no, she then went to him. And accused him. And you know what his response was? How dare you accuse me of something like that? And if you can't trust me, then you need to leave this church, which she eventually did. So I already, I had him. And then of course, the next day he calls me into his office and about, you know, screamed at me. 
how dare you indicate that there could have been something between us and you almost told her and she suspects something because you didn't convince her that there wasn't. So again, he was blaming me for this woman, my youth group leader, noticing something and it was my fault and I almost exposed him. And so I knew, you know, so what was I going to do? Tell someone after that? Right. No, no. The gaslighting was real. I love that picture of the maze that you just mentioned, yes. Mary. Um, and it just reminds me too of like, yeah, there's no exit. We keep hitting walls. And then that's also the reason why the three of us and so many others out there are going back to the maze and finding the ones who feel like there's no way out. That's mm-hmm. why you wrote the book. That's mm-hmm. why we speak out. That's why this podcast exists. That's why the Unleashed groups are here. Like, thankfully now, because when we were younger, you know, right. and being abused, we didn't have people yeah. that were doing that. And I just, it really does give me hope to know, like, and it's not just us. There's hundreds oh, of yeah. us, mm-hmm. you know, that are going back in the maze and looking and being a light and noticing the red flags and saying the thing and, you know holding out a hand and, and, and showing them we found a tunnel, Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Can it out. follow me. We got food, yeah. we got water. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. It's like prison break. Right. I yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I I've often said, I wonder what would have changed in my life if I'd heard someone else's story at the time my abuse was going on. You know, I, we all think we're the only ones and that we're alone. And so if I'd heard someone else's story, maybe it would have given me the courage to come forward or I would have known, okay, this isn't just me. And so, yes, that's why it's so important that we do help each other and tell our stories um, for that very reason. Cause we're not, you're not alone. And even though you, cause I've even had victims say, well, I know, you know, clergy abuse happens, but I thought mine was different, you know, mm. whatever, whatever oh, reason yeah. they thought it was different. No, That's it's right. not different. You know, we, we have a lot of same similarities. Our stories can vary, but the, the tools that these predators use are the same. Um, the gaslighting is the same. I can't tell you the number of victims that I've talked to that said, Oh, he told me that he was just like David in the Bible too. I mean, that's the, that's a classic for, for preachers. And they, they want to say, well, God forgave David and David and Bathsheba. And, you know, that's their go-to story as why they should, they are justified in what they're doing because God could forgive David and he's got faults just like David. It's, it's a classic they use. <laughs> this instruction manual that they have, can we find it and burn it? I mean, these, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. I'm just grateful. I am grateful for this book. I'm grateful for your voice. Um, I am just, I just feel like, you know, we've been talking about sexual abuse for years, but clergy sexual abuse is a whole nother level mm-hmm. and something that hasn't been talked about as much. Cause the other thing it does in the chapter in the book is called spiritual wounds. It has contaminated and, and my church life and my spiritual life in, in many ways. And I, mm-hmm. so many victims refuse to go back to church. They no longer yeah. believe in God. Right. This isn't just about, you know, someone who's taken and, and, and every abuse is horrific, but this goes to the next level of, of touching someone's soul and really taking away their spiritual life as they once knew it. And while I'm still spiritual and I still have a relationship with God, it's not what it was and it's not the same. And maybe yeah. that's good. Um, 
And so victims of clergy abuse need to understand that it's okay to have questioned God in this. Where was he? It's okay. I've had victims say, I'm not sure I believe in God. You know what? God is a pretty big God and he knows what was done to you. So I think he gets that. Mm. He understands that. And so accept the fact, accepts, don't beat yourself up over trying to figure out how I can keep my spiritual life the same as it was, because it's going to be changed after you've been abused in the church. Many of these predators, mine did not, because I don't think he had a soul, but many predators in the in the church will pray with their victims after they've had sex with them. Think what that does to someone who is who's always had prayer as a comfort, that they've lost that. And, and so you have to go to a place where these victims are in their spiritual life. So I tell people in the church, people who are spiritual, when you're dealing with a victim of clergy abuse, don't ever say, I will pray for you. Because that can be a trigger. That's a trigger mm-hmm. for many victims in the from the church. The, the thing to do would be, would it be all right if I pray for you or pray with you? And, the, and then accept the answer of no. And that's don't right. use it as a judgment. Like, well, why wouldn't you want me to pray for you? That, that's a good thing. You ask permission and then you accept the answer. Secondly, right. don't quote Bible scripture. Mm, We're not right. in a place to listen that, God cares for you. Okay. I might believe that, but I don't want to hear it from a person outside. I'll read it for myself. So don't quote scripture and then don't tell that person they need to forgive. And those are the three things that people in the church, whether they're well-intentioned or not, they need to understand that these are triggers for victims of clergy abuse. Mm. And how about you need to be in church? Right. Yeah. I mean, church is very difficult for me now. I still go and have, um, I, it's better at times. And I, I think for me, I still try to go because I do look for the good parts of what I, I liked about church. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, I think it's my way of saying, you took a lot from me, but you're not going to take this from me too. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm going to find some way. And there are Sundays when I won't go because I am I just know it's not going to be a good place for me. And then there are other times when I think, I feel like I want to go to church. And you're right. That is something else that victims are are told from clergy abuse. And, and that's the thing. You know, when you've been abused from outside the church, you can go back to your church and find peace and solace and prayer. And you can go and counsel with your pastor. We can't do that. Yeah. We can't. We've lost that. We have right. lost that. We haven't lost it. It was taken from us. That's we right. didn't lose it. It was taken yeah. from us. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And these men steal souls. They steal souls. And let me ask you this. If the church hired a church treasurer who had been accused of stealing church funds from his first church, but you hired him anyway, and then he stole some more funds from your church, would you say, we forgive you? It's not Mm -hmm. a problem. We want you to stay on as our treasurer. (laughs) I mean, no, there's, first of all, there would be a clamoring to say, we want our money back. And this man needs to go to jail. He's the church treasurer. And that's not what you do, but he's the pastor. He steals mm-hmm. souls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a really great way to look at it because why are we looking at abuse any different? I mean, there's actual humans. It's not dollar yes. bills. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. a really, really good point. And I do think that, you know, giving that compassion to survivors of clergy abuse or to those who've been sexually abused, went to the church 
and the church didn't respond appropriately, that mm-hmm. still feels like clergy abuse, yes. you know, but to have that compassion, the freedom to be asked for consent before, you know, talking about certain things or prayer, like that's giving the power back. That's helping a survivor find their footing again and you know, not like put expectations on them yes. to be coming to certain meetings or whatever. Like you're saying, we love you. We um, are praying for you, but we are giving you your choice, your control, mm-hmm. your empowerment in the midst of, we know this is a journey. I mean, so I think expectations also- are off. When you ask when when you ask that question, would it be okay if I pray with you? Or I know that church can be difficult for you. You are acknowledging to that victim that I get it, I yeah. understand, and that is that is a gift that you give to that victim. And it's okay to say I don't understand the pain that you have gone through, but I'm here for you, and That's whatever right. I can do. And I understand that prayer can be difficult. I understand that scripture reading can be. Di- just verbalizing those words to a victim is a gift that you, it's powerful to give. And like you said, it gives the power back to the victim. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people don't understand how powerful it actually is. Like they want to come alongside, but usually it's about having all the right things to say and pointing them in the right direction. And truly what really means the most to us is having someone listen mm-hmm. to sit at our feet and ask us some questions, ask us how we're doing, ask us what we need from them versus them just assuming that they have all the answers. Mm-hmm. So I, I love what you're saying. And I feel like that is such a gift that you are giving the church to know how to change their ways. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. It is to, a gift. Yeah. To be more victim centered, victim focused, um, and to see it from the perspective of a victim, because they've never seen it from the perspective of a victim. It's always been from the perspective of the pastor and how can we protect the church and what can we do? It's right. it's no one has ever had victims in the past come forward. They probably have, but they've been sh- shunned in silence. But now the victims are speaking out and we don't do it out of vindictiveness. This isn't no. about hatred. This is right. about saying, here's what was done to us in the church and how can we make a the church safe? What can we do? And, and, and it's very difficult sometimes for those church members to understand they are removed. They're removed from ministry. They're removed. That is the consequence of their own behavior. They chose to, to, to take advantage of someone under their care and therefore they lose that privilege of ministry. Mm. This is a question that might be outside of our conversation expertise, but I'm wondering because I see this a lot lately of like a, he said, she said in a clergy sexual abuse allegation and, you know, even having a third party come in and there's just like, we don't really see. So then what do you do about the removal? What do you think? Well, I think that's your, it's a tough question because I, I yes. we do, we don't want false accusations, but I do think if you get uh, enough experts in to say, okay, we do see some red flags. We may not, we can't prove what she's saying yeah. is accurate, but there, yeah. there are red flags here that, 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 that tell us there's a question as to whether or not this occurred or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that if you dive, if you dive deep enough, you will see it. It will come out. Um, and again, false accusations are so rare. They are right, very, right. and 
not only that, but then if you go back to the victim and question her a little bit more and, and victims should be questioned. I mean, listen, we don't want people just run. I mean, I have a husband, I have a son. I don't want false accusations, but their stories can start to fall apart pretty quickly if investigated in a proper way. So that I think you go from both yeah. ends of that way yeah. to see. Um, mm-hmm. And the sad reality is that there will be times when it is accurate and it is true, but it, it can't be proven. Um Mm-hmm. But there's always 99% of the time, there are victims prior and there are going to be victims after. Yeah. So once one victim comes forward, and I think we've seen this with in, you know, in the uh, corporate world and in the, in the entertainment world, once one victim comes forward, the dominoes start to fall and more will. Um, So So maybe a person isn't removed because there's no real clear sign. Then it's like, okay, let's just stay aware. And, and Uh, yes. And 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 if he is abusing, then he's going to be on heightened awareness too. Um, And his behavior may either change to keep and protect himself, or he's going to leave on his own. And he'd probably say things like, well, you know, I, I don't, this church doesn't trust me, or I was, I'm just appalled that they would think I would do anything like this. And I can't continue my ministry under this shadow. So I'm going to leave. He hightails out. (laughs) Yeah. Which is another red flag. Mm -hmm. But even so it comes back to caring for the victim, the one that came forward and that person still needs the support even if there's no change or justice seen for that victim, they still need cared for um, in their own way. And I think that's really important to continue to be Jesus Mm -hmm. to those who felt wronged and marginalized and all of that to have a voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Give them a voice. That's really important. My last question, because you just brought up that you have a son, how has this affected your parenting? Well, it's interesting. I have a daughter as well. Mm. Um, because I didn't see it as abuse, and I thought I got the only bad apple in the barrel. <laughs> I truly believed that this was just a one-time thing that I had had an affair with a married man. And so I would never think that my daughter would fall into the same kind of trap. Now, when she mm-hmm. turned 16, I do remember looking at her thinking, oh my gosh, look how young she is. And this is how young I was when it started. But oh. she went on church retreats. She, I never feared when she was at church because I didn't wow. see myself as an abuse victim. I now, see. okay, wow. let me just say this. I have yeah. two, I have two granddaughters. I watch them like a hawk. Uh, and because I have, now, you know, yes, I yeah. now know. And I understand. Wow. And so I ta- I've even talked to them about it. They're still young, but I can assure you as they get older, each time there's a different situation that comes up, I'm going to be right there talking to them about it. And the older they get, the more details they're going to get on my own story. Mm-hmm. So yes, I mean, I know I that that's an interesting take on my, how I treated my, but I took them to church. I, yeah. I did all those things and never once feared that they would have this happen to them because this was just a, a one-time incident that happened with me. And I was paying attention to my kids. So I knew that they were okay. And I, they didn't come from a divorced family, so they didn't have any vulnerability to, to prey upon. And yeah. So, but wow. 
My yeah. granddaughters are now being watched carefully. <laughs> that really is interesting because uh-huh. it speaks to where we are in our healing journey and what our narrative is, mm-hmm. how we live out of the narrative that we have believed, whether it's true or false. Right. It does affect the way that we interact. So that's very, very insightful. Yeah. That's probably unusual for most um, victims. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my case, I just knew that it was an affair that I had and I didn't want anyone to know about it. And I was moving on. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Um, awesome. Well, I love this interview. I really appreciate all the work you're doing and just your, your willingness to be so honest and vulnerable about your story. It's very courageous. And I know that you've been speaking with other organizations like SNAP, um, mm-hmm. the Survivor Network for those abused by priests. That's really cool. And then you mentioned um, your work with the Hope of Survivors. Yes. Are you still working with them? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, and I wasn't familiar with them until I heard you talk about yeah, it. Yeah, they are a very faith-based. So I I, I caution people um, mm. if you've been abused by clergy that they're, you know, they're very biblical. Um but they're a good organization. And, and there are people who need that kind of counseling who, who are very still strong in their faith. So, um, but I just, I let that be aware yeah. when people go to that, but they have a lot of good information. They too believe that they should be removed there. It's not as if they protect these predators. Um, okay. They have a lot of good information. So it's called the hope of survivors. Um, and then I'm also on the council on child abuse board directors. Okay. Which Excellent. provides yeah. educational material for, for, um, children in the schools. Okay. Very good. Well, we thank mm-hmm. you for your work and we're so grateful you are a part of our podcast. Thank you for yes, coming well, on. Thank you. And you, I appreciate all that you two are doing as well. Yeah. Thank you. And then um, I know that your book can be found most places. Where would you love for people to like connect with you or find more of your resources? Do you have a website you could I share? do. The website is just my name, which is a little long, but it's Sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-M, uh, dot com. That's my website. Um, okay. And there's a lot of good information. You can get my book there, but you can also get it on, on Amazon as well. Okay. Excellent. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. So it'll be easy to okay. click to. And okay. yeah, we just are so grateful for you. Thanks, Sandy. Well, thank you. Yeah. This will be very encouraging to our listeners and very relatable and and let people you know, know they're not alone and they're not alone and there is hope and there is healing that's right that's right well, thank you so much until next time sandy we'll see ya thank you Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to iamonevoice.org. 